I was thinking as I was walking in here that, uh, you know, this, this, this fall, this semester, I just haven't heard the, uh, the jokes, the ribbing. Nobody's been making comments about the domination of Ole Miss football or Tennessee football or, I mean, and, and after, you know, after this week, we can't even, we can't even get excited about Memphis basketball. I mean, it's just depressing, isn't it? It's just, and, uh, you know, when the only, and I, I can relate, I'm a Florida Gator fan, so it's been, it's, it's, I feel like I'm back in 1983 with the Florida Gators where we're just going to get beat by everyone, and the only good thing that could happen is that our, that our coach gets fired. Um, but I, I did want to say that, uh, that Tennessee fans, you guys can cheer up because I wanted to let you know that as you're looking for a new coach, Jim McElwain is available now. So if you want to pursue that, please do. It is, it is really sad, but, but, but more importantly, let me, let me say this as we begin our time in Hebrews 5 this morning. More importantly, as I was coming in this morning, driving in early, early, and, uh, you know, you have that thought. I'm sure every one of you had this as you got out of bed or as the alarm clock went off. You know what? Maybe I should just stay in bed. Um, maybe, uh, maybe it'll refresh me more if I just sleep another hour or so. And, uh, and as I was driving in, I was thinking, um, you know what? I'm going to get there. I'm going to see all these men, 150 plus men, and it is going to refresh my soul. And I just want to let you know again this morning that your presence and faithfulness personally refreshes my soul. We'll look at it later when we get to Hebrews chapter 10. But the writer of Hebrews says, uh, Do not neglect the gathering of yourselves together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day of the Lord approaching. So there's some contrast, there's some, there's some uh, tension or connection between uh, not gathering and being discouraged and gathering and being encouraged. And I know exactly what the writer of Hebrews means. When I walk into this room uh, at 6.30 in the morning and I see all of you, brothers in Christ, my soul is refreshed as a result of that. And we know this. We, we, we tell this to our sons, our grandsons as they start their, their careers, we tell them, listen, or if they're just in college or just in high school, we're like, just show up, right? Just get to the classroom. Just get to the office. If you just show up, what do you say? We tell them it's like 90% of life. And I'll tell you what, in the body of Christ, as we, as we seek to be the church together, 90% of it is just showing up. And I feel that this morning. Being with you here this morning refreshes my soul, and I'm very, very grateful. Yesterday in preparation, uh, well, we're actually on our, our pastor's retreat, and I drove back from the pastor's retreat last night and driving back after the meeting this morning. But we are going through, uh, during our pastor's retreat time, we're going through John chapter 17, which is the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Uh, in John chapter 13 through 17, you get a, a deeper look into those moments at the Last Supper in the Garden of Gethsemane, and you get to hear the prayers, read the prayers of Jesus that he has with his heavenly Father. And, you, and you, as you read those, particularly in John chapter 17, I was struck yesterday by the fact that we had these recorded, and, and I was at least getting to read and see one side of this conversation in the Trinity. 
And I thought as we read and as we prayed about that, what, what was that conversation like? We don't get to hear the other side of the conversation. We don't get to hear God the Father's response in that moment in John chapter 17, but we get to see the words of Jesus. We can infer from other parts of Scripture that conversation. And just that we have it, just that we can have it in our hands and read the depth of that is, is amazing. To see that conversation, to see that intimacy, to have it for us. And I would tell you before we uh, read these 10 verses in Hebrews 5, we have this with us right this morning. The depth of what we're about to read, the, the glimpse into the Trinity that we're about to get is amazing. Last week, as, as Dick taught at the end of chapter 4, remember the last verse of chapter 4 says that we boldly enter the throne of grace. And I always think of that in the context of Christ having paid the price allows me to walk into the throne room of heaven, allows you to walk into the throne room of heaven, uh, not fearful as a subject, but as a, as a child, as, a, as one whose heavenly father sits on the throne. And you walk in boldly because it's your dad, because it's, 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 you are a son. But think about this. Think about the context of that. You're walking into the Holy of Holies. You're walking into the presence of God. And so what we have here for us as we look at these verses is a glimpse into that moment in the presence of God. We're going to see this conversation even here that, that the Father, we're going to get to see the Father's words to the Son. Even as in John chapter 17, you see the Son's words to the Father. And not only that, what we're going to see here, because we get two of my most favorite psalms in, in all of Scripture, and we're going to look at those, we get to see these quoted, and we're going to see this redemptive history that goes all the way back thousands and thousands of years before us, before Christ, that it was always this way. And so in these ten verses, not only the intimacy and depth of a relationship between the Heavenly Father and His Son, but we're also going to get to see how this plan, how this thought covers the entire span of human history, going all the way back before the world was created, that this conversation was taking place that would save us. It's absolutely profound before us. And what a blessing it is for all of us to gather together to encourage each other and to sit in front of this and get to soak it up. May God give us his Holy Spirit uh, to open our eyes and to see these things. Let's read Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10 together says this, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when he is called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And he also says in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. 
And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now I just want to point out here that the word priest and the word mediator are intertwined. That a priest is one who mediates between man and God. I also want to point out that the idea of a priest is, is all over uh, human religion. This idea that there would be someone in a religion who mediates the relationship between people and God. And the question for us this morning really is, well, what is a true mediator? And, 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 and why would we need that? Why do we need to have a true mediator? Because we're going to you would know that there are many priests in all kinds of religions, whether it's Muslim uh, religion or uh, whether it's uh, Hindu or whether it's uh, Buddhism or whether it's some uh, deviance of Christianity. There are those men and women who put themselves up as priests, who put themselves up as mediators. Well, the question is, what is a true mediator and why do we need a true mediator? And that's what's answered here for us in these verses. And so five things for us this morning. First of all, the true mediator must identify with our humanity. The true mediator must identify with our humanity. In verses uh, five, excuse me, three through or one through three, he points this out about the priests that were in the priestly line of Aaron. And the reason that that God uh, ordained or set up priests was not because this was some kind of mystical religion. A lot of times you think of a, a priest or you see it played in a movie and there's some kind of mystical uh, thought here. There's some holy man who has some holy insight. The reality is, as we see here in verse 1, that it's not some kind of mystical holy man. It's, it's from men. Someone's chosen from among men from among human beings to represent human beings. It's just someone grabbed out and said, now we're gonna, you're going to do this work of mediation. So it's not some kind of mystical holy man. It's actually a, a responsibility. This is serious business, and you've got to act on behalf of men. And not only that, but this person, this mediator, must know human beings intimately. And not just know them like, like you know as a friend. Not just know on the outside like I've, I spent a lot of time with you and I know you. But what it says here is that this, this priest has to be someone who is like you. And that's why that priest was chosen from among men to act on behalf of men. Because he couldn't just know you like a friend. He had to know, he had to know what it was like to be you. And so the identifying was not just a matter of an outward identity but was actually a matter of an inward identity. And any of you who have uh, been involved in any kind of addiction or have actually um, helped those in addiction, I mean, you know this to be very, very true. Just the other day we were talking um, about helping a, a young man who's dealing with alcoholism, and as someone so wisely said, and this isn't, this isn't completely true, but it's, it's mostly true, only an alcoholic can help an al alcoholic. Only an alcoholic really knows those feelings. And I, and I understand that to be true myself personally. Only an addict can help an addict. In my teens and my 20s, I struggled for 12 years with a bulimia addiction. And while there were others who tried to come alongside me and help me, 
I tell you who could really help me. It was someone else who was an addict. Someone else who was further down the line who had gone through it and had experienced it and could speak back. And I remember in, in, uh, in the midst of struggling with that addiction, I could look into this person's eyes and know right away they understood me. I could know right away. Within, within five minutes of the conversation, I was like, he's an addict too. He's going to be able to understand me. And so the priest has to be someone who is not just uh, aware of us, but actually knows what it's like to be us. And then we find there in verse 3, this, this conversation or this thought about uh, offering sacrifices, not for the sins of others only, but for the sins of himself as well. What is this talking about? Well, ultimately he's talking about the Day of Atonement. And uh, we're going to do this this morning. I know you do this every, every once in a while. But one of the purposes of us studying the book of Hebrews is because it opens up in so many ways our entire Bible. And so we're going to look at a few different places this morning. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 16. A um, couple reasons I want to turn there. One is I want you to know and have sealed in your mind that Leviticus chapter 16 is the explanation of the Day of Atonement. Understanding the Day of Atonement really, really enriches your understanding of your own salvation. It really deepens it. So the Day of Atonement was this one day a year where there was a special sacrifice made for the atonement of the sins of the entire people and the high priest made this sacrifice. Now let's read in uh, Leviticus chapter 16. We're going to start reading at verse 2. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the fail before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. You need to have that context. Holy of holies, the ark of the covenant, the mercy seat was there. And he's saying, tell Aaron, the high priest, the, the ultimate mediator at that point, don't come in there at any time you want. Because if you do, you're going to die. In fact, it was so terrifying that on the Day of Atonement, when they did go in, they would tie bells around the high priest's robe. So that way they could know if they heard the bells, because nobody was going to go in there, that if they heard the bells, that the high priest is still alive. If they don't hear the bells, the guy's dead. He's done something wrong. Not only that, but they would tie a rope around his ankle because if he was dead, nobody was going in to get him. <laughs> They're just going to pull him out. Can you imagine how terrifying it would be to be the high priest and realize that the bells that you're hearing basically are in case you die because there's a good chance you will. And the rope that's around your ankle reminds you nobody's coming to get you. They're just pulling you out like you're in there by yourself. This is a, this is a solemn moment. So it goes on, verse 3. But in this way, Aaron will come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and he shall have the linen undergarments on his body. He shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the burnt of the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and his house. 
And he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Aziel, which is a scapegoat is the, is the word there. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat offering for which the lot fell, Aziel shall be presented alive before the Lord and make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azaziel. And Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself in his house. And he shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. And he shall take a censer full of coals from the fire from the altar before the Lord. Two handfuls of sweet incense, beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense of fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger in front of the mercy seat on the east side. In front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions and all of their sins. And he shall do this for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. The details of that are striking and important. It reminds us of God's holiness. And it reminds us of this intense moment. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He's saying, hey listen, there was this day of atonement and you know it because you're Hebrew believers and you know your Old Testament, you know your Bibles. And you know Leviticus 16. And you understand that the priest who identifies you with that true mediator would have to make atonement for his own sins because he understands you, because he is you. And so this true mediator must identify uh, with humanity. And then the writer of Hebrews, if we turn back in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5, number 2 for us this morning, the true mediator was appointed by God. The true mediator was appointed by God. He says in verse uh, 4 and beginning of verse 5 that the honor of being a priest in the Old Testament was not taken on for yourself. You had to be appointed from among men, but you're chosen by God. In the same way, he says, and now he's going to start talking about Jesus, that Jesus Christ was chosen by God, appointed by God as a priest. So in the same way that Aaron was appointed and his sons and his line are appointed by God, not taking honor for themselves... In that same way, Christ is appointed by God, not taking honor for himself. And there's a couple reasons for this. First of all, brothers, this is God's work. This is not the work, ultimately, of the priest. This is God's work. God the Father is the one who is doing this. He has decided it and he has appointed the priest. And, our, and our, uh, we miss this a lot in our everyday life. In fact, I would say in our politics right now, we're missing it massively. That the work on this earth is God's work. And first of all, brothers, let me just bless you this morning with this. He does not need our help to get things done. And so this this mess that's taking place in uh, Alabama uh, with this senator... And this, this conflict that we could feel like, okay, well, if we vote for this person, um, 
then we're voting, uh, we're voting uh, for someone who's going to propose uh, abortion. If we vote for this person, we may be, we may be voting for someone who uh, uh, had inappropriate sexual relationships. And if we vote for some other person, well, then our vote doesn't count. And what do we start thinking? We start thinking, well, I, I need my vote to count because i got to make this work. Brothers, you don't. You and I need to do what is right. And I'm going to tell you, there, there's, there's going to be a lot of votes, more and more, uh, in city government, in state government, in national government, where the two choices, neither one of them as a follower of Christ can you really take. And it's going to feel like a throwaway vote to do something else. And I'm just telling you, we've got to trust God that he's doing the work and not decide that we've got to help God out a little bit. It's his work. One of my favorite uh, <laughs> music artists has a song um, or has a, has a phrase in a song that I just love. It says, stop helping God across the road like a little old lady. And I think a lot of times we in the United States feel like we've got to help God out because this isn't going to work out if we don't help him out. It's God's work. And you can rest in that. And that's why you see throughout the, throughout the Bible, you see it so many times in Psalms. I love this and I hate this all at the same time. It says, wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. I mean, so many times. If you just read through the book of Psalms over a period of a couple, three months, and you just underline the amount of times it says wait on the Lord, you'll be, you're going to have to get a couple um, extra pens because you're going to run out of ink. And what's the point? Don't run ahead of God. Wait on Him. It's His work. He's the one that is doing this. And so this work of mediation, this work of our salvation, it's, it's God's work. He's the one doing it. A true mediator is appointed by God also, the other reason, not only because it's God's work, but because it's God's honor. I know this is, uh, this is unsettling for some of us, um, but it shouldn't be. It should be affirming that the ultimate purpose of our salvation was not us. The ultimate reason that God chose to save you and me was not ultimately because he loved you and me. Now it is true he did or does love you and me, those who, uh, that he has saved. He loves us. And it is true that he went to the cross for uh, our salvation. But that wasn't the ultimate reason. The ultimate reason that Jesus went to the cross was to glorify the Father. And I know some people say, well, that, gosh, that doesn't seem as, I don't like that as much. I'm like, no, you should like that as much because it actually secures your salvation in an even greater way. Because if the glory of God is at stake, that means your salvation is sure. Absolutely sure. Because it's ultimately not about us. Oh, that's so good. That feels so good. If it's ultimately about the glory of the Father, I can be sure that these things are done. A true mediator is appointed by God. It's ultimately about His honor and about His glory. Well, Roman numeral three. And here's, brothers, this is where it gets really exciting. Um, I'm going to try to get 
numeral three done before we we finish today because I I get so excited about this. The true mediator is both king and priest. The true mediator is both king and priest. And in these verses, the writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. Psalm 2 says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And then in another place, Psalm 110, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now I've got to give us a little context here that when the, uh, the Hebrew people thought of a Messiah, they knew about the promised Messiah, they had a tendency, and certainly uh, the, the ones who were receiving this letter, the letter of Hebrews, they had this thought in their head that there would be a, a, uh, a, a kingly Messiah, a lay Messiah, one who was not a priest, uh, but, uh, uh, but who could free them, who could uh, rescue them or save them politically, and there was also a priestly Messiah who could take care of their sins. And so they thought there would be, there'd be two messiahs, there'd be two saviors. Okay, and, and even in the Old Testament, when you look at the way that God set up his theocracy in the Old Testament, the way he set up the nation of Israel, he said you cannot mix uh, the king with the priest. Other, other countries did that in Egypt the king was the deity. The king and the priest, the deity, were the same thing. But as God set up the nation of Israel, he said, you know, you've got to keep those things separate. You have a king and you have a priest. You have a kingly line and you have a priestly line of Aaron. Remember, that's, what's, that's what got Saul in trouble in 1 Samuel 17. He's waiting to go to battle and he's waiting on uh, Samuel to show up, the priest, to offer sacrifices. And he doesn't wait on the Lord, <laughs> right? And he wants to go into battle, and, and, and Samuel's not showing up. So in 1 Samuel 17, Saul, uh, uh, Saul decides, you know what? I, I've, I've seen Samuel do this, this priest thing before. I think I, I think I got it. And so he goes ahead and offers the sacrifices. And then Samuel shows up. And Samuel says right away, what have you done? And it was... It was that thing, it was that moment that unraveled Saul's kingship because he had gone against God's rule that you cannot mix the king and the priest. But here, in Christ, in the mediator, you see the kingship and the priestly office mixed together. And this is so key and important for our salvation. And he shows this by looking at these two psalms. And we need to look at them. First of all, Psalm 2 uh, Psalm 10. And these are two psalms that, again, I really hope become for you go-to psalms as you think about the depth of your salvation. It's so key for us. Psalm 2. Both psalms are, are, are not very long. They're both messianic psalms. Listen to what it says in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and why do the people plot in vain? And the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And so you have your governments, earthly systems, cultures saying, we don't want anything to do with God. We're going to set up our own rules. We're going to set up, and they're setting themselves up against God. And sometimes right now, I mean, I think at all times in different places, those of us in the United States have felt this, but we feel that. We feel that, that political challenge. We feel that, that the, the, the system of government, the system of, of the United States is setting itself up against God. 
And our temptation is we're going to help him out. But what does it say in Psalm 2? I love this. What does it say in in, uh, verse 4? He who sits in the heaven laughs. God is is not, uh, in any way is he ever surprised or worried about who gets elected to what. Not the slightest. As rulers and governments set themselves up against God, what does God do? He sits in heaven and laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree the Lord said to me, and this is speaking God the Father speaking to God the Son, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces with potter seeds. How will he do that? Through the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. And brothers, we're seeing this all over the place. The government of China has set itself up against God. It's done so, you know, decades and decades ago. And yet, where is the church growing faster than anywhere on the face of the planet? China. God's in heaven, he laughs. He's like, whatever. Whatever. I will make the largest church in the world take place there. Government of India through Hinduism and all that, setting itself up against the the Holy One, against God. What does God say? He's like, you know what? I'm going to give India as an inheritance to my son, Jesus. And thousands upon thousands upon thousands are being saved every day in India. And nobody can figure out why. And I'm like, well, read Psalm 2. I'll tell you why. Because God has decided that he's going to give India as an inheritance to his son. But here's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm setting my king on my holy hill. So I'm making Jesus king. He is going to rule over the entire earth. He is my Holy One. And so that's why the writer of Hebrews says that. He is, uh, he is King. Uh, he is the one spoken of in Psalm 2. He is the one uh, whom God the Father is going to give the nations as an inheritance. When you pray for missions, when you pray for your office, when you pray for your city, uh, when you pray for your sons and daughters and grandsons and grandson, uh, granddaughters, college campuses, when you pray for other countries, pray Psalm 2. Say, Lord, would you please give that university as an inheritance to your son? Lord, would you give my office as an inheritance to your son? Father, would you give Memphis as an inheritance to your son? Heavenly Father, would you give... Pakistan as an inheritance to your son. Father, will you give the United States as an inheritance to your son? Pray that, that the king might have his possession. Well, then he also quotes Psalm 110. So flip over in your Bibles to Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is only seven verses long, but it is the most quoted chapter in the entire Bible. It's quoted 35 times in the New Testament, Psalm 110. And then listen to these, uh, 
uh, quotes by great theologians. Uh, Martin Luther called Psalm 110 the high main psalm of Jesus and then went on to write 120 pages in his commentary about Psalm 110. John Calvin said that verse 4 of Psalm 110, which is the one that's quoted here in Hebrews, is the hinge on which our salvation turns. D.A. Carson, Don Carson, who's up at Trinity, probably, uh, if not the greatest living theologian right now, is one of the greatest living theologians. He said about Psalm 110, that Psalm 110 helps us put our Bibles together and helps us understand Jesus. You read those three things, and what do you, I think I need to understand Psalm 110. Now, the great part is, is that a little bit later, when we get to chapter 7, you're going to get to really understand Psalm 110 because uh, the writer of Hebrews really starts to elaborate on what you see in this whole uh, thing with Melchizedek and the order of Melchizedek. And so as much as I would love to unpack Psalm 110, and I promise you I would love to, I had to keep writing in my notes, don't steal chapter 7. Don't steal chapter 7. So I'm not going to steal chapter 7. You're going to get to that. But I wanted to give you a little taste of, uh, of what's going on here. And I wanted you to notice here. Let's read, let's read these seven verses because it's important. First of all, it says it's a psalm of David. Okay, and that phrase, a psalm of David, that you see there in your Bible, that exists in the, uh, the oldest manuscripts that we have. And so uh, clearly when you look at the way we, we evaluate manuscripts, this is something that was there. That's very important. It's very important to know who's writing this. Because if you don't, if you say that somebody besides David is writing it, if you say somebody in David's court is writing it, then you would interpret these verses as thinking they had to do about David. But they don't have to do about David because David's writing it. So they have to be do, have to do something, they have to be something else. And he says, the Lord says to my Lord, and notice there in verse 1, that the first Lord in your English Bibles is all capitalized. That means it's translated from the word Yahweh. And notice that the second Lord in that, the Lord says to my Lord, is cap, first letter's capital and the other three are not. And that's translated from the Hebrew word Adonai. So Yahweh says to Adonai, and, and it's, it's David writing, so he's not talking about himself. God the Father says to Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the mediator, my Lord, Yahweh, says to Adonai, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. This is the gospel message going out in China and in India, where the gospel message is ruling in the midst of enemies. Verse 3, your people will offer themselves freely in the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. There's a lot of stuff there, and ugh, I want to get into it. Look on your, your schedules. When it's chapter 7, make sure you're here. All right? Don't be out of town for that. You're going you're gonna to want to know this. We're just going to look at verse 4 because that's what's quoted in Hebrews chapter 5. It says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest 
forever after the order of Melchizedek. What does that mean? What's he saying? It's a priest, and then we talked about in Psalm 2 that you're the king. Uh, Lord has said, I will set my king on his holy hill. Now, what is this order of Melchizedek? Well, in Genesis chapter 14, this guy Melchizedek appears after Abraham, along with some other kings, have gone out, and they've had a victory in battle, and as they're walking back, this Melchizedek figure comes out. And what's interesting about Melchizedek, of all the major characters in, in the book of Genesis, he's the only main character that they don't mention his mom and dad. And you'll hear that talked about more in chapter 7. So there's something significant about this. And it says of him, this is fascinating. Oh, by the way, Abraham goes ahead and, and offers uh, a, a tithe to uh, Melchizedek. He's, he wants to worship God, and so he uses the priestly office of Melchizedek. But as we see in Genesis chapter 14, Melchizedek, it says, was king of Salem and priest of God. And so the order of Melchizedek, the priestly order of Melchizedek, of which, from we understanding our Bibles, only know that it was Melchizedek and then Jesus... So that order was an order that combined the kingship and the priestly office. Because it says he was king of Salem, which by the way, most likely geographically, what we understand from Genesis, king of Salem. There were lots of Salems in, the, uh, uh, in that time. But this was most likely Jerusalem. Melchizedek was king of Salem, which eventually became Jerusalem and he was priest of God. And so this mediator has to be, the true mediator has to be king and priest. Why? Why in the world does that have to happen? Because the true mediator has to have power and authority in himself and also has to be that person who identifies with humanity. And so why is Christ a, and after the order of Melchizedek as a priest, not Aaron, because one, he is completely other than the order of earthly priests, and he is also fully God. He is God's son, and he is priest, fully man. Fully God and fully man, and he cannot be our mediator. Salvation does not work unless he's fully God and fully man, unless he has the royalty that comes from being connected to the Father and the humanity, the identity of being connected with us. And that is why you want to come back for chapter 7. We'll move on. <laughs> Roman numeral 4, the true mediator is perfected in obedience. The true mediator is perfected in obedience. There's some interesting phrases here as you turn back in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. Particularly this phrase that he was, that he learned obedience through his suffering. And you ask yourselves, why did Christ have to learn obedience? How could he possibly have needed to be perfected? Wasn't Christ being fully God? Didn't he understand obedience? Why did he have to learn obedience? What does it mean that he had to be perfected? How could that be possible? We got a little a glimpse of that in Don's prayer. Okay, because Christ had to come, identify with our humanity, become fully man, and then had to experience what we experience. Only he had to do a few things. First of all, he had to obey 
where we had not obeyed. In order to be our mediator, he had to be perfected in his obedience because we were imperfect in our obedience. So in order to be the sacrifice that could pay for our sins, he had to be a perfect sacrifice. He couldn't be like Aaron where he went and made a sacrifice for himself and then he made... No, he was the perfect sacrifice, the final sacrifice. In order for that to happen, he had to obey where we didn't obey. And as Don was talking with me before we started and as he prayed in his prayer, what was it like? That first testing of Jesus those first moments of temptation to disobey his parents. And he had to be obedient all through his life, facing the same temptations as it said, what we looked at last week, that he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, so he can identify with our weaknesses. And the context that we're given here, and specifically, because it talks about uh, the fact that... Uh, um, Where are we here? In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his reference. What is he talking about? He's talking about the places in the gospel, particularly in Mark chapter 14, where Jesus is there in Gethsemane and he's pleading with God, uh, terrified. He's absolutely terrified as he pleads with the Father, would you please let this cup pass from me? It's very important for us to realize why was Jesus terrified? He was not afraid of death. He was not afraid of the suffering. He was not afraid of the beatings, the whip, the cat of nine tails. He was not afraid of the cross. That was not what constituted his fear in that moment. What horrified him was the thought of becoming our sin. And taking on the wrath of God. It gives us a glimpse of the depth and the depravity of our own sin. That that one who was fully God and fully man could look at my sin and, and have absolute dread of the thought of owning my sin and therefore owning the wrath of God on behalf of me. And so it was because Christ was perfected in obedience, and and what we see in the Garden of Gethsemane is that, that, that ultimate act of obedience. Because he had obeyed throughout his life. He had been perfected as he, as he learned obedience. Obeying when we did not obey. He suffered uh, for us. And then there in that moment, he has to take on our sin. Remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. So he... Right in that moment, and what does he say? Lord, please, Father, please take this cup from me. Please take this cup from me. And then he says, in the anguish of his his prayers, not my will, but your will be done. And he gets up from the ground. He walks over to the disciples who can't even stay awake at the prayer meeting. And he says, let's rise and go meet my betrayer. And he walked out in perfect obedience in that moment. That's what it's talking about in Philippians chapter 2. 
Philippians chapter 2. When it says, have this same attitude that, that was in, uh, that's yours in Jesus Christ, that though he was God, did not think equality with God was something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking on the form of human flesh. And he became obedient, it says, to the point of death. And so here in Hebrews, it says in verse 8, although he was a son, so something we can never say, we can never say, Jesus doesn't understand my suffering because he was the son of God. Verse 8 says, no, though he was a son, he learned obedience through suffering because you know what? He prayed that God would take the cup and God didn't take the cup from him. God says, my will is that you, that you suffer, that you become sin. And he was obedient in that. A true mediator is perfected in obedience. And therefore, not only is he perfected uh, by obeying when we didn't obey, but he's also perfected for us as our atonement. He suffered the full amount, the complete amount. He paid the full price. He became obedient even to the point of death, it says in Philippians chapter 2. And finally, brothers, and rapidly, I know we've got five minutes. Roman numeral five, the true mediator is the source of eternal salvation. I love this. It says there, being made perfect, he became the source. Not the one who made it happen, but the one who is himself the source. There is no other, brothers. There's this whole idea that there's many ways to God makes absolutely no sense. By the way, there's no other religion. Muslim religion, the Hindus, they don't think, oh yeah, that Jesus thing, that's a a possibility. No, they're exclusive too. And any idea in our heads that there's many ways to God just doesn't make logical sense. Because what's clear here is that we need one who is a source. We need a mediator who who wraps up all of these things. There are no other ways, as Hebrews 12.2 says. He is the author and the founder of our faith. As we read in Psalm 110, God says to him, He is a priest uh, after the order of Melchizedek forever. He's forever that priest. And in Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to see... This priestly act, what he does in our atonement, what he does in our salvation, it says, once he had made atonement for our sins in his own body, once he had made that sacrifice, it says, he sat down at the right hand of God. What does that mean? It means the work was done. And that is why on the cross, his last cry is, it is finished. There is no more to do. Christ is the source of an eternal salvation. Brothers, as you walk out this morning and you think about the sin in your life and you think about your need of a savior, of a mediator, one who is both king and priest, let me give you this good news. It is finished. There is nothing else to do. Christ has made atonement for your sins and he has sat down at the right hand of God because the work for your salvation is done.